The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Bruce Lanfear. He is both a physician and he holds a master's in public health. He is a senior scientist at the Child and Family Research Institute at the BC Children's Hospital, as well as professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. I heard Dr. Lanfear speak at the Children's Environmental Health Network Conference in Austin, Texas in February of 2015. And like Dr. Lanfear, I too believe that understanding our environment is key to promoting health and preventing disease. His primary goal is to help quantify and ultimately prevent disease and disability, such as asthma, learning problems, and ADHD due to exposures to environmental contaminants and pollutants. And one of the videos that he showed, it's a great teaching tool focused on how little things matter. So that's where we'll start our conversation. Dr. Lamphere, welcome. Thank you. So I think that your video pointing out how small quantities, we're talking about parts per billion amounts of environmental toxins, can have truly devastating effects on a population. Tell me a little bit about why and how you got into this area of research, and why you're using a video to help teach the public about this. Well, early on, when I was in my 20s, I wanted to eliminate poverty, but it seemed a bit overwhelming. And so I decided to to tackle one thing and to work with an investigator, Michael Weitzman, up in Rochester, New York. And the hope was that if we could prevent lead poisoning, then we could take away a barrier that prevented children from succeeding in life. So it may not be fully eliminating poverty, but it might help children get out of poverty or take away those barriers that keep them there. And so some of my early research was doing things that seem a little bit odd for a physician, but I was studying house dust, what levels of lead in house dust are dangerous for children. And in particular, we were looking at the amount of lead contamination in house dust, because up until then, and still today, the way we identify houses that contain lead hazards is we let a child live there. And then when they're poisoned, we say, whoops, we should do something about it. And so what we were trying to identify is ways to go into the home using a simple test, which looks like a baby wipe, uh, and measure the amount of lead in house dust as an indicator of whether that house would ultimately poison a child. And that should lead us to fixing the problem before the child's poisoned. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very difficult, I think, for most of us to understand quantities that are so minute in terms of part per billion levels. And your video, Little Things Matter, and we'll provide a link to that. Our goal is to help this video go viral because it's so well done. Helps us really understand how small amounts of toxins can have huge effects on a population. So how do we describe parts per billion in a way people can understand? Yeah. Well, let me just first point out that Little Things Matter, the title of the video, really refers as much to the idea that children matter, little Mm -hmm. people matter. But then we went on to try to get at exactly what you're talking about. How is it that parts per billion can really have that big of an impact on brain development or other things? One part per billion 
is equivalent to two tablespoons of sugar in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So it's a very small concentration. And because of that, for a long time, we've dismissed these as, as exposures that are too low to be of any consequence. But there's a few things that are worth thinking about. And the first one is little concentrations in the parts per billion. We know matter from the drug industry. For example, methylphenidate, which is the primary drug used to treat children who have ADHD symptoms, is effective at 5 to 30 parts per billion. Now, that's the same general range of concentrations we see exposures like lead, flame retardants, PCBs in pregnant women and children. And so one of the things that's clear to me is that we can't have it both ways. We can't, on one hand, have a drug industry that says we can reach therapeutic levels in 5 to 30 parts per billion that are consequential, and we can sell these drugs at billions of dollars a year, but at the same time have a chemical industry dismiss the environmental chemicals that we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis because they're too low to be of any consequence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also think that the way we test for toxicity is worth a discussion. So, for example, it's my understanding that the way chemicals are tested, if they're tested at all, is that they are tested for acute toxicity. But what I'm learning is that there's chronic exposure that really makes a difference. Right. Both are obviously important, but the acute poisonings we typically think of as those very high doses that lead to overt symptoms. And that's oftentimes how we first recognize that certain chemicals or metals like lead, like PCBs, were toxic. We basically had an environmental disaster that exposed dozens or thousands of people, and we saw people die or severely disfigured. From those, we began to recognize that perhaps even lower levels of exposures might pose harm. And one of the earliest studies was by Herb Needleman, and he measured the amount of lead in baby teeth. And then the homeroom teachers of these children rated them on a whole variety of behaviors and intellectual ability. And he was able to show that after taking other factors into account, even at levels that previously thought to be safe or innocuous, he was showing evidence of harm. But up until that point, it was thought that if you didn't have those overt symptoms or the symptoms of poisoning, everything was fine. That really began to change the way we thought about some of these toxins. But still, 30, 40 years later, the regulatory system has not kept up. So for most of the chemicals that are out there, they were grandfathered in since 1976, since the TOSCA or the Toxic Substance Control Act was first passed. Most of those did not require regulatory testing to make sure that they were or were not toxic. So right now, over three-quarters of the chemicals we're exposed to on a regular basis have not been tested for whether they're toxic to the brain or the reproductive system. We do a better job when we try to look at carcinogenicity, whether they cause cancer, but not so much for the other problems that many of us experience. And so that's really the dilemma. And right now there's two bills in Congress to try to reform this now outdated act. And it's not clear that that's going to achieve what we hope it will. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of industry pressure not to change things. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, because I'm a dietitian, I focus a lot on pesticide residues in foods. And I, I look at the EPA website, I look at the USDA website, and I'm very curious to see how the EPA will say, absolutely, children are extremely vulnerable, they need to be protected. And yet at the same time, the EPA recently approved a new formulation of pesticide that will combine 
glyphosate or the active ingredient in Roundup with 2,4-D. So maybe each of those compounds are tested individually, but rarely do we ever see testing on synergies or synergistic reactions between chemicals or, or with chemicals combined. That's exactly right. And yet Rachel Carson described this in Silent Spring, the book that was published over 50 years ago, this concern about joint effects. And so we talk about it, and when we do this kind of research, we think we're at the forefront of environmental health, but the concept has been around a long time. But I should also point out, even when you take these things individually, for example, like glyphosate or 2,4-D, when we say or when the EPA or industry says that these are safe, what it really means for the most part is that the type of studies that need to be done to prove they're not toxic haven't been done. We don't know that glyphosate is safe at the levels we're exposed to. In fact, even though it's the number one herbicide used around the world, we don't know what kind of exposures are going on at a regular basis. We don't know what levels children are exposed to or pregnant women are exposed to. So it's not safe because the studies have been done. It's declared safe because certain studies haven't been done to show they're toxic. Now, is it possible that they're safe? Of course, but the studies haven't yet been done to prove that. And so your point that there might be synergistic effects makes us even more concerning, that even once we get to those levels of looking at whether they are safe in human populations, we have to worry about chemical mixtures. And it's not just those two pesticides we're exposed to on a regular basis. It's dozens, if not hundreds. And the studies that need to be done to prove that those chemical mixtures aren't toxic will take us a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Rachel Carson because to celebrate Earth Day, I picked up the latest edition of that book with a new foreword, and I was rereading it, and I thought to myself, wow, 50 years. Has anything changed? Well, undoubtedly, we have made some progress. Airborne levels of pollutants have come down. We've generally, not entirely, but generally moved away from using persistent pollutants. Now, those persistent pollutants, like DDT, like PCBs, uh, we can find them in virtually all of us. So they will be with us for generations, but we aren't continuing to use them in the same quantities. New ones that have been recently identified as being toxic, like PBDEs, a type of flame retardant, the PFASs, both of those are also persistent, and we've been using those. So we are slowly, slowly moving away from using these persistent pollutants. That is some indication of a success. But I think what's really beginning to happen now, which is both hopeful and also somewhat tragic, is that we're beginning to realize that environmental chemicals and pollutants play a much bigger role in the development of death, disease, and disability, the common things that kill us on a regular basis or maim us. And yet we still seem to focus so much of our efforts on treatment as though this elusive search for a cure is better than prevention. And yet I think if you ask most of us, whether in the end they want the silver bullet, that magic bullet, or whether they just rather not have the disease in the first place, I think most of us would opt for prevention. And yet our system is set up that it really focuses heavily on seeking out that cure. But I'd also like us to stop and think about that for a moment, because if you really stop and think about this 50-year search and investment, heavy, heavy investment in searching for that cure, there's not a lot to show for it beyond antibiotics and a few isolated drugs. Where we've really seen progress is in population-level prevention, certainly vaccines, airborne pollutants, reducing frequency of smoking, 
control of lead poisoning. That's where we've seen the greatest benefits, and yet we still continue to focus on that search for the cure. What troubles me is I think it's mostly driven by a profit motive, not a public health motive. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was so important in your presentation in Austin was this focus on genetic the genetic issues relating to, say, let's look at autism, for example. We've seen skyrocketing rates of autism. It troubles me very much as a mother of children who are in childbearing years. You know, when I was pregnant 30 years ago, I worried about maybe having a baby with Down syndrome. That was the only thing on my mind. And now we look at one in 68 children born now with autism. And I see research struggling to find the genetic links. And I think, hello, could we look at some of these environmental toxins in our environment? Right. And to be fair, what we're really concerned about when we think about conditions, let's talk about brain-based disorders like autism or ADHD or intellectual disability. What we're really talking about are complex diseases or disorders. And when we talk about complex diseases or disorders, we're concerned about the interplay of both genetic and environmental influences. So, of course, it, it makes sense to think of genes. And I, but I think what you're pointing to, which is extraordinarily important, is this idea that somehow genes are more dominant in explaining these conditions. But when you see something like autism that has risen so dramatically, although we acknowledge there's going to be genetic vulnerabilities, what has changed has to be an environmental trigger. And yet, in the first decade of this century, We've spent a billion dollars in investigating genetic causes and only 40 million or 4% of that seeking out environmental causes or risk factors. There's a real problem with that. First of all, because now we know, although I predicted this several years ago, nobody really paid any attention, that we would not find genetic causes unless we did it in concert with environmental causes. We have to look at both if we really want to take full advantage of the the genomic revolution, and yet we haven't for the most part. But the second thing is the search for genes really gets us back to this problem of why are we searching so heavily for genes? Because it's going to help us find a cure. But why aren't we seeking out those things that will help us prevent the disease? Well, there's no profit in that, or at least there's no way to privatize the profits. Let me give you a different example from an established toxin, lead. So right now, it's estimated, despite the dramatic decline in blood lead levels, that about 24 million IQ points are lost in a six-year cohort of children. We estimated that about one in five cases of ADHD can be attributed to lead exposure. The annual cost of lead exposure in U.S. children is $50 billion a year, mostly reduction in lifetime earnings. And if we invested a dollar to reduce lead in housing, society would benefit somewhere between $17 and $220. Now, that cost-benefit ratio is better than the cost-benefit ratio for childhood vaccines in a country like the United States. Both are obviously important, but why are we willing to invest in one, vaccines, which, by the way, there are profits to be made, and not the other, lead exposure, where the benefit primarily will go to all of us in society but not be able to be privatized? And that is... I think, why we make certain decisions, that we have left it up to the free market to decide whether we will protect our children or not. Mm -hmm. 
Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Bruce Lanfear. He is a senior scientist at the Child and Family Research Institute, BC, Children's Hospital, and professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. Well, Dr. Lanfear, you are known for your landmark work with lead, and I'm curious to know what kind of industry response you had when you really brought forth the problem of lead and the huge costs that were associated with contamination. Was your work welcomed? <laughs> Not always. The first thing that happened after being nominated to serve on the CDC Lead Advisory Committee by the Clinton administration, which didn't get approved before President Bush the second came in, I was disinvited along with three of my colleagues because of early discussions about focusing on efforts on reducing childhood lead exposure and focusing on primary prevention. So that that was my first experience of having policy-relevant science be published. Several years later, after we continued to, to find evidence that there were evidence of toxicity, even at the lowest levels, the industry came after me a number of ways to try to get our raw data. And I, I had to deny releasing them that data because it wasn't all mine. I had released our raw data before, but this data belonged to other investigators as well, including some outside the United States. That was like a seven-year process, and they finally came after us with a, a suit through the Freedom of Information Act. So that's been sort of the, the strategy that they've used. And by that time, I was already in Canada, and ultimately we did release that data to them. The interesting thing was they, they paid some, some statisticians to reanalyze the data, and while they found a few typos and, and minor errors, in the end they concluded that maybe the evidence suggested the effects were even greater at lower levels of exposure, which is really quite surprising. Hmm. So tell me what you're working on these days. Well, what I've started to do, along with a whole host of colleagues, is to begin to build on what we learned from lead. And we started by first studying children based on blood lead levels, and seeing what the impact was on mostly on brain function, growth, and stunting. And now we're beginning to look at exposures that occur during pregnancy to the child, and we measure a whole variety of chemicals in either mother's urine or blood or hair, like bisphenol A, like phthalates, a variety of pesticides, flame retardants. And now we follow this group of children out to oh, eight years of age and we're trying to examine the impact of a whole variety of these chemicals on everything from thyroid disorders to brain function, ADHD and, and intellectual abilities, as well as the development of wheeze or asthma. And there have been several that we found, uh, flame retardants, for example, or PBDEs, we found that along with other studies in the United States, seem to, to be pretty consistently associated with delays of about four and a half to five IQ points in children and an increase in ADHD symptoms. Uh, we found some other kinds of behaviors with bisphenol A exposures during pregnancy. And what has become clear to me as we look at this is that I don't know whether this particular chemical or that particular chemical will be toxic when we first start studying it, but what I do know is that we've seen a pattern of toxicity. We know that chemicals like bisphenol A or phthalates have the potential to be toxic, even at exceedingly low levels and yet we treat each one as though we've never seen a toxin. If you think back to the drug industry in the first part of the 1900s, there were a dozen or so people who continually tried to regulate drugs. 
it took a thalidomide epidemic where thousands of children were disfigured before we were willing as a country to regulate those drugs or those chemicals. And we're really in the same position now. We're sort of waiting for that that major crisis that stands up. And and apparently, brain-based disorders like ADHD or intellectual disabilities aren't sufficient. We need to have something so grossly obvious like loss of limbs before we're willing to regulate these chemicals. But that's essentially what we're waiting for. Mm -hmm. I see autism in that light when I see truly the staggering increase. And I'm also curious about why the rates are higher in boys, which makes me think there's an endocrine component. But I want to get your opinion on that. Well, boys in general seem to be more susceptible to several of the toxins that have been studied. And we think that's part of the reason that boys have higher rates of ADHD, for example. Many of the toxins, like lead, like tobacco, like OP pesticides and bisphenol A, are dopaminergic toxins that impact the levels of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex. So there does seem to be something to that. The idea that boys and girls have differing effects, and that means it's an endocrine-disrupting chemical, certainly has some merit. It may also be indication that the genetic difference between boys and girls matters. I mean, there's probably few other differences as great, genetically speaking, as the X and the Y chromosome, right? Mm -hmm. But I think there could certainly be, and we know for some of these chemicals, bisphenol A, for example, has some estrogenic properties, and that can alter behaviors in boys and girls in different ways. Phthalates is an anti-androgenic chemical. That means it, it tends to lower testosterone, and that might have implications that are different for boys and girls. I mean, we know these things. We know that these chemicals alter the levels of, of sex steroids, for example, that the child is being exposed to in utero during pregnancy. And we know that that alters brain development. And yet somehow what's so striking to me is that we can't act on that. We're paralyzed because public health is really not considered paramount. It certainly comes after the profit motive. And as a public health scientist, as a physician, I find that really troubling, really difficult to even comprehend how we can do that, how we can put profit so high above public health, above people. Yeah, I agree. It's very troubling to me as well. And just to give our listeners some numbers, these are the numbers you shared with us in Austin, that with regard to the increase in autism, it went from 1 in 5,000 children in 1975 to 1 in 68 in 2010. If that isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what is. But let's get back to this whole idea of how we have to make a change. And as you described, you know, I feel absolutely paralyzed as one person. And I want to know your thoughts on how we can move the dial so that we are better focused on public health. How can we get people to think less of the profit motive and more of taking that precautionary approach? Well, this is the other reason that I decided to start developing an online atlas, the Canadian Environmental Health Atlas, and the videos, one of which you mentioned, is that there is a lot of evidence out there that isn't always very accessible. And so what we're trying to do with the atlas and the videos is to make some of that science accessible to people so that we can begin to make decisions. And it is one of the biggest challenges, you know, how to take what is sometimes very complicated science and make it simple enough. And yet, you know, for some of us, I'm kind of a simple guy myself. In order for me to teach it, I had to simplify it. But 
things get in the way of that sometimes. We, we have created a system where we require a fairly high threshold to be reached before we're willing to say, as public health officials or epidemiologists, that this chemical causes this disease. In fact, you'll rarely ever hear us say the word cause at all. Uh, and sometimes we can't even get ourselves to say a causal risk factor. We can only say associate. And to some extent, there's some truth in that, of course, because what we're trying to do is tease apart the impact, for example, of lead on brain development when oftentimes children who have lead exposure often grow up in a poor environment or don't get adequate nutrition. And so it is difficult to tease some of these apart. But when you've got now two dozen studies showing the same thing across different populations and over time, at some point we need to be able to say that we know enough. And that's really been one of the biggest barriers to making decisions is that this industry-framed problem that we can't use the word cause, for example, or that it's too difficult to say we know enough. And part of the other problem is that at the policy level, the EPA doesn't have the mandate to do what it needs to do to protect children. The vast majority of people I've worked with at the EPA are very well-meaning public health officials, and yet they struggle because they don't have the mandate. They don't have the resources uh, that they need to protect the public. Yeah. There's going to have to be extreme public outrage and action and, and people feeling more of a part of their government, I'd like to think. You know, I knew our time would fly, but we just have a minute or so left. Is there anything that you want to pull out from your years of research to give our listeners as a charge or to leave an, an ounce of hope in their hearts? Well, there is actually a lot of hope, and that is the pandemic of consumption, the worldwide epidemic of chronic diseases we're now beginning to recognize has at its roots many of the foods, the unhealthy foods that we eat, the unhealthy exposures that we have to air pollution, lead and chemicals. Much of the disease is anthropogenic. It's man-made. And to the extent all of this is true, what it means is that we know enough to prevent a lot of the disease and the death and the disability that plagues us. That's quite hopeful. How we get there from here because of all these, these roadblocks and hurdles that have been put in place is daunting, is a challenge. But without any more genetic tests, without any more molecular investigations or new drugs, we can prevent a lot of death, disease, and disability. And that should be quite hopeful. I think the biggest challenge in all of this isn't the science. The biggest challenge is to recognize that what's happened is the way we operate our country, the way we operate the United States, is like a corporation. And each of us, you and I, as U.S. citizens, have a single minority shareholder vote. But Dow Chemical or Bayer or DuPont, they have a majority shareholder vote. So what we have to do, and I, I look to the moms in particular for this, moms have often been the ones that bring about change, for the moms to get together and say, enough and get enough of us minority shareholders together, enough of us citizens together to vote and say, we want to protect children. Now, we have an opportunity. The chemical bills that are in Congress now are ripe for change, and if we can get behind Barbara Boxer's bill and really push for that to be passed, we could, within a few short years, be making dramatic changes in the health of our children. 
Well, Dr. Lamphere, I want to thank you so much for your work and your time with me today. We've been speaking with Dr. Bruce Lamphere. He is a physician at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Lamphere, I will provide links to both your environmental health atlas and your excellent video, Little Things Matter. Again, thank you so much, and thank you for being my my guest. Thank you. Delighted to do it.